Imagine Podcasts. The second day of the weekend-long US Festival was being called the Heavy Metal Woodstock. The spiky haircuts, neon outfits, and skinny ties of New Wave Day the night before were replaced with long hair, leather jackets, and spiked wristbands. And the caliber of bands scheduled to play Metal Day was staggering. Quiet Riot, Van Halen, Ozzy Osbourne, Scorpions, Motley Crue, and of course, Judas Priest. The event was staged by Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak and was produced by Bill Graham. Event organizers had gone all out paying top dollars for the stars of the day and provided impressive amenities to the performers scheduled to play the open air field in San Bernardino, California. So in the early afternoon of May 29, 1983, Judas Priest were picked up from their hotel, driven to a nearby airport, and helicoptered to the stadium. As they approached the venue, they saw the ocean of metal fans. 250,000 of them gathered down below. It was the largest crowd the band had ever seen. And as the blazing sun bathed the audience and stage, guitarists Glenn Tipton and KK Downing, bassist Ian Hill, and drummer Les Binks blasted into Electric Eye the first song from their latest album, Screaming for Vengeance. Vocalist Rob Halford started singing as he snaked through the crowd and around the backstage entrance. When he hit the chorus, the singer walked past a wall of martial amps and into full view of the crowd, which roared with approval. He wore an ensemble of black leather and silver studs, along with a biker hat, a metal leash, and handcuffs that dangled from a studded belt. Rob also had on mirrored shades and brandished a bullwhip in his right hand. He looked like a well-dressed member of a biker gang as he led the band through fiery versions of hits, fan favorites, and other songs. Tipton and Downing commanded both sides of the stage with confidence, and when they wandered near one another, they rocked back and forth in unison, a chugging machine of metal might. Judas Priest ended the set with the scorching hit, You've Got Another Thing Coming, then thanked the crowd and exited the stage. The roar of a revving motorcycle pierced the air moments before two amp stacks on hinges parted like saloon doors, and Halford rode a Harley Davidson back to the front of the stage and perched with his legs and rear on the front wheel and his feet on the stage monitor as the band played their signature biker gang anthem, Hellbent for Leather. The show is a raging triumph and established Priest's ability to dominate a festival crowd. Afterward, the band was helicoptered back to its hotel. The festival signaled the end of the tour and the band and crew ordered drinks and celebrated. They were joined by adoring fans and beautiful women. Drinking and laughing followed. Then, as some of the girls went up to the hotel rooms of some of the evening's revelers, Halford entered the elevator, pushed the button to his room, pulled out his key, and opened the door. He cracked the minibar, poured himself a tall glass of whiskey, and sighed. He had never felt so trapped or alone. And with each step in his career, he covered up his insecurity with booze and drugs. By the mid-80s, I was a full-on 
drunk and drug addict. You know, I mean, I really was just losing control. You literally think you're on the verge of, you know, crossing over and waking up the next day and, you know, literally feeling like walking death for three or four days. And it's, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol are very kind of, um, it's the word insidious, the way they kind of creep up on you into, into your life and you find yourself doing more and more and more. Hi, and welcome to Backstage, The Devil in Metal, that takes a look at the stories behind the tales of legendary musicians, wild bands, outrageous events, and the evolution of various subgenres of metal that some still consider the devil's music. I'm your host, author and journalist John Wiederhorn, and all season long we'll unearth new tales, view storied incidents from a variety of angles, and talk to a bunch of musicians that have danced with the devil and so far, live to tell the tale. This week, we present the second in a two-part series about Judas Priest frontman Rob Halford. In this episode, you'll learn how Judas Priest's career skyrocketed in the early 80s, and how Halford, a closeted gay man in metal, became increasingly disenfranchised by his inability to be himself in public, and the medical and psychological trauma he experienced, including a lengthy hiatus from the band he co-founded, before he finally came out and experienced a second wave of popularity with Judas Priest. A major 1977 gig in Oakland, California, opening for Led Zeppelin, was a big vote of confidence for Judas Priest, and gave the band the determination to head straight back into the studio with energy to burn, despite not having taken a substantial break in over a year. CBS Records hooked the band up with producer Dennis McKay, who encouraged Priest to downplay the meandering excursions and focus on writing tighter riffs and hooky choruses without toning down the guitar firepower of their sound. Halford and guitarist Glenn Tipton worked together on the scorching album opener, Exciter, a cavalcade of guitar heroics. And Halford hooked up with new drummer Les Binks to write what turned out to be his favorite track on the album, the slow burner, White Heat, Red Hot. Other standout songs included Invader and the vocally virtuous ballad, Beyond the Realms of Death. Before Judas Priest left the studio, CBS convinced them to record one more song so they'd have a commercial track they could push to American radio. The song, a cover of Spooky Tooth's Better By You, Better Than Me, was recorded at the end of 1977, when the band had one foot out of the door, with full intentions of enjoying Christmas and New Year's. The musicians would never have guessed that the final song would lead them to an ugly and heartbreaking lawsuit 12 years later. Just two months after they finished recording Stained Class, CBS released the album, which was the first Priest record to include its trademark jagged lettered logo and many still consider the album the point where Judas Priest began to gravitate away from Prague excursions into a more mainstream direction. Vocalist Thomas Lindbergh, who made his name with the Swedish melodic death metal band At The Gates, says hearing Stained Class was a pivotal moment for him as a vocalist. As he told me from my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends, I think Stained Class is like the ultimate record because it has it mixes both styles. It's the first that has a really like full 
crunchy production, but still have that little, uh, those more intricate guitar lines to it. This record and like the early stuff by Priests doesn't really get old. Whereas like, you know, some of the hits that came later kind of get like, yeah, I heard it before 10,000 times. I know the song too well to even be excited sometimes, you know, but this is really still like, wow, it still grabs you. The stained glass era was a confusing but critical time for Halford. He wasn't about to raise the rainbow flag in solidarity, not even close. Yet in 1978, Judas Priest fully cultivated their image overhaul. A leather and chains look heavily influenced by biker wear and S&M culture. Halford and guitarist K.K. Downing started the whip cracking by purchasing black leather cut-off shirts and pants. When they got back to Walsall and showed their bandmates how cool they looked, the entire group traipsed through London in search of gear that complemented their new look. One establishment they visited in Wandsworth featured sex toys and ball gags, as well as leather pants, caps, boots, and studded wristbands. In retrospect, some have assumed Halford's onstage getup, which included chains and handcuffs, mirrored what he liked to wear in the bedroom. But that's not true. The further on that we get, and and the more curious people become about my life as a gay metal singer in a in a in a in a, in a band, there's some assumption made that that was me just being flirtatious and just being um, again I'll show you in in the nature of what we created and and that's 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 just not what it was about. It never was. It was the perfect definition, the perfect visual definition to the to the heaviness of the sound. And of course, there is this wonderful subculture in, in the leather community, which is a, which is a fascinating experience if you really want to delve into it. And I've done I've done a little bit of dabbling. I'm still vanilla. I'm still vanilla on issues like that. But, it's that British thing. Lie back and think of England. Um, you know. So um, it's, it's nice, though. It's fun. It's cool. And it's, and it's great to talk about. Judas Priest couldn't wait to get back to the U.S. to pick up where they left off after opening for Led Zeppelin. The two-month tour started in New York and zigzagged from Texas to California. Having learned about the gay weekly San Francisco paper, The Advocate, a public hit that included a calendar of gay-themed events, Halford couldn't wait to get to the Golden City and explore its cultural diversity. When the band played San Francisco, Halford tracked down a copy of the paper, but he didn't visit the predominantly gay Castro district, out of fear he would be recognized. However, while he was in the city, Halford picked up a pamphlet called Bob Damron's Address Book, which listed gay bathhouses, bars, and cruising areas in hundreds of spots across the country. It was like finding a treasure map for every city in America. As titillating as it was for him to have the keys to the kingdom, his fear of being recognized prevented him from visiting any of the locations. Other ventures yielded more significant results. Before Judas Priest played New York, a CBS staffer hooked Rob up with gay friends who wanted to meet him. After the show at the bottom line, Rob met the fans. They took him to a house near Central Park. Guys there were praising him and saying how great he was at the show. Rob had a drink, then another. 
Suddenly, he felt woozy, then incapacitated. In his book Confess, he wrote that a couple of the guys dragged him to another room, and suddenly, against his will, there were hands all over him. And an older man, removing his false teeth and unzipping the rocker's pants before performing fellatio on Halford. After the deviants had their way with him, Halford staggered back to his hotel, furious and overwhelmed. More than that, he felt foolish for having allowed himself in such a precarious situation. You lose sight of common sense because you have such this, such a strong urge to have some intimate experience that you just um, you, you, you just you, you forget about the consequences. It's a bit like you know with with my drinking and my drugging. I knew it was bad for myself. I knew I was damaging myself, but I kept doing it. You know, Halford's excesses didn't affect his stage performances. If anything, they lowered his inhibitions and made it easier for him to slip into character and project his charisma to all the old fans who were there for Priest, as well as those experiencing their metal assault for the first time. When Judas Priest finished the show, Halford was still flying on endorphins. So the demolition continued off stage, enhanced by a combination of the exhilaration of success and substance abuse. Watching his bandmates hook up with female admirers was frustrating for Halford. And as he surrounded himself with rowdy fans, his destructive impulses took over. I mean, I was a, I was a particularly, um, I wouldn't say violent to, to people, but I was very violent to material, material things. You know, I mean, I was, you know, doing the, doing the classic smashing TV sets, letting off fire extinguishers, pulling telephones out the wall, all that kind of destructive stuff, which is kind of sad, really. I would be famous for doing my, um, I did have my, you know, my fire extinguisher years. For some, for some unknown reason, when I was drunk and high on cocaine, I used to have this thing about, you know, letting off fire extinguishers no matter where they were, whether they were in elevator lifts or hotel um, rooms or corridors. The shenanigans reached an apex at the end of the stained class tour, when Judas Priest played Japan. Halford loved the exotic city, and the enthusiasm of Japanese fans was infectious. Had the band taken the stage at 8 or 9 p.m., circumstances might have been different. But Judas Priest began rocking at 6 o'clock. And even after an after-event show, they were back in their hotel by 9 p.m., which was way too early for raucous young adults in foreign lands to unwind and shut down for the night. There is one famous story which I'll tell you from Japan, where uh, I came home from a, a night on the sake and uh, was um, fumbling around, you know, trying to let off whatever was available in the fire extinguishers in the hotel, and I had, had, this, had this idea of sticking the tube from the fire extinguisher under the door of our tour manager and running back to my room. Well... Two things happened. Firstly, it wasn't a water fire extinguisher. It's one of those pink powder fire extinguishers. So I set it off, ran down to my room as I was laughing hysterically like a complete idiot. Heard all this commotion going on, and people yelling and screaming and so on and so forth. And, you know, this is at like three or four in the morning and so on. Very surreptitiously, 
break open my uh, hotel room door and look down the corridor to see all of these Japanese hotel employees and everything. And uh, this, uh, this, this guy, who was not the tour manager, but was a Japanese businessman, covered head to toe in pink uh, fire extinguisher powder. So I'd mistaken the tour manager's room. I put the, the hose under the, you know, some of the guy's door. And he was standing there literally covered from head to toe and had to be, uh, had to be moved to uh, another location. In yet another effort to maintain momentum, Judas Priest returned to the writing studio to work on their next album as soon as they had finished the Staying Class tour. And they had the Midas touch. Flipping through his thesaurus one day, Halford discovered the word hellbent. The title for hellbent for leather quickly followed, and the phrase triggered a rhythm in Glenn Tipton's head. The track for the band's next album was created almost without effort. In addition to rippers like the track Killing Machine and Delivering the Goods, there were anthems such as Take on the World and Rock Forever, and the heartstring-tugging ballad Before the Dawn. Take on the World captured the strength in numbers, Never Say Die ethos of metal, and the song shot up to number 14 on the charts, while the album was the band's third in a row to hit the top 40. Propelled by their popularity, Halford upped the ante on his onstage theatrics lashing at the crowd with a bullwhip during the set and firing a machine gun filled with blanks into the crowd for an average of at least five minutes at a time. I would walk off the stage as we were getting ready to it and then the props guy would give me the machine gun which was like on a, was on a strap. So that would be the terrifying moment because I'd walk back out and people would go, what the fuck? Surely to God that's not a machine gun. Is it a plastic one? No, it's real. What is he doing? What's going on? What the fuck is this? You know, and then I'd kind of look at him and then I'd point it at him. <laughs> that was a bizarre thing. I mean, and this is, and this is, you know, well before the internet. So nobody really knew in advance what was going on. Unsurprisingly, the machine gun stunt came under fire from safety inspectors who felt that the prop was dangerous and could trigger a crowd to panic. At least Rob still had the whip which he continued to use to lash crowds. T-shirts were even printed that read, I've been whipped by Rob Halford. Then Rob had another flair of dramatic genius. He decided to ride on stage on a Harley Davidson motorcycle during the song Hellbent for Leather. We said, wouldn't it be great if we could, get, if we could bring the bike on stage when we do Hellbent for Leather? Because it's, it's a wonderful song. It, it's, a, it's a rebellious song, it's about freedom. It's a little bit anarchic, you know, it's got a wonderful sense of, you know, Marlon Brando on the waterfront, that kind of vibe, mm -hmm. Jimmy Dean, that type of thing. The only problem with the idea was the band didn't have a bike with them on stage. Fortunately, many serious bikers were fans of Judas Priest. And, well, how many times does one of your favorite singers ask for a little favor? Bikers, people riding bikes would come to our gigs and we'd say, hey, you know, you want to, you know, buy a couple of drinks, you come and bring the bike on stage. Yeah, go on, man, you have a good time. So I, I, we, we, would, we would use whatever bikes we could find at the venues, you know, if, if Halbert Fleur was on the set list, 
and I would literally come roaring out on stage on the bike and the crowd would be just like, what the fuck is this, you know, this is just crazy. Judas Priest's heightened profile earned them a tour with Kiss. They were personally requested by Gene and Paul. And Halford was especially excited by the tour since, at the time, Gene's girlfriend was none other than Cher, who Rob met and briefly chatted with whenever he could. As he wrote and confessed, Cher is a very big deal to gay guys. Halford had a run-in with another icon of the gay community, when Judas Priest returned to New York to play the Palladium. After the show, the band attended a tour-ending VIP party at the Mud Club, and as Rob milled around, he noticed a short, older man with peroxide white hair taking pictures with a small Olympus camera. It was Andy Warhol. As a fan of Warhol's pioneering pop art in avant-garde movies, Halford was determined to meet Warhol. He introduced himself thanked the artist for coming, and engaged him in polite conversation. Oh, really? replied Andy, with seeming indifference after every question. Already inebriated and lacking inhibition, Halford removed a pair of handcuffs from his studded belt, clicked one end around his wrist and the other around Andy's wrist. He joked with Warhol that he didn't have a key for the cuffs, and Warhol replied, Oh, really? Then Rob said he was joking produced the key, and unlatched the cuffs. Apparently impressed by Halford's spontaneity, Warhol invited Rob to come with him to the legendary New York disco haven, Studio 54, and Rob happily accepted. The two hopped in a cab and headed for the club, but just minutes after they arrived, Warhol disappeared into the crowd, and Rob never saw him again. With their careers blazing, Judas Priest kept burning the candle at both ends. As soon as they got back to England, they entered Tittenhurst Park, the house formerly owned by John Lennon, to write and record the album that many consider the high point of their career. Surprisingly, British Steel, which featured an iconic image of a hand gripping a razor blade, was written and recorded in under a month. The heaviest tracks, Rapid Fire and Steeler, helped plant some of the seeds of thrash metal, and songs like Breaking the Law and Living After Midnight remain two of the band's greatest hits. Considering how quickly they assembled the album and how hard they were partying, it's incredible that British Steel was so cohesive and well-crafted, and the sessions brought plenty of stories as well. One memorable tale involves the creation of the song Living After Midnight. As Glenn Tipton recalls, I was bashing out some chords one night, right, right below Rob's room, and he came downstairs and, uh, and I said, hey, you know, guys, it's after midnight. And we said, yeah, living after midnight. And so, you know, we, we were on a tight schedule in those days. The management wanted to get us back out on the road again. So we were, you know, we'd got limited time to actually uh, write and record albums. And we actually recorded and mixed that. So Tom Allen, the producer, tells me in 28 days, this day and age, it would be very difficult, I think, for us to go into the studio and, uh, and record and then write as well. But, you know, we had a surplus amount of energy and enthusiasm at that time. So we, uh, and it really did pay off. I mean, there's a, I suppose there's a certain argument saying, you know, if you give yourself a deadline, you've got to come up with the goods. And we actually did it. British Steel took Judas Priest to greater levels of acclaim. 
living after midnight and breaking the law became staples of rock radio in America and remain highlights of the band's live set. Boosted to arena headliner status, the band played a worldwide tour, which became legendary due in part to the opening act, Iron Maiden. Before the tour began, Maiden's then-vocalist Paul Diano boasted to the press that Maiden were going to blow Priest off the stage every night. Judas Priest guitarist K.K. Downing, who felt the band was doing Iron Maiden a favor by inviting them on the tour, was angry and offended by Diano, and demanded Maiden be removed from the dates. The rest of Priest shrugged off both the slight and Downing's reaction. But maybe, because of the temporary friction, Many fans of both bands believed for years that there was great animosity between the two bands. Alfred and Diano actually became drinking buddies on the tour. One late night, both were hammered. Alfred invited Diano to his hotel room to continue drinking. In his autobiography, Alfred says he tried to seduce Diano, but he was too drunk to make a move, and Diano was too inebriated to recognize Rob's intentions. For both singers, everything worked out for the best, preventing what might have turned into a major scandal. When Judas Priest weren't on the road, Rob Halford lived in Phoenix, Arizona with his boyfriend, David, the guy who had asked if the Judas Priest song Raw Deal on Sin After Sin was about gay cruising. It was the closest Halford had to a long-term relationship, even though David was seeing other people. Rob, too, had found a way to indulge himself. While his bandmates were surrounded by eager and willing groupies, Halford returned to Bob Damron's address book, the city-by-city guide of gay hangouts he had acquired in San Francisco. The book provided limited success, but some companionship was better than none, and Halford enjoyed a memorable interaction with a military man at a hotel at a spot in Pittsburgh. Being seen in predominantly gay locations or getting caught in compromising positions weren't Halford's only concerns. There were far more dangerous consequences. The first cases of AIDS were diagnosed in 1981, and in the years that followed, the disease became widely known as the gay plague, since the virus largely was spread through unprotected sex. Most of Halford's sexual encounters were impulsive and indiscriminate, so protection wasn't always an option, and AIDS became a terrifying reality, one that was both life-threatening and demoralizing to the entire gay community. Particularly in the 80s, I mean, I lost friends from AIDS, which, you know, by itself is, a, is just a horrible separate tragedy. But uh, yes, I remember when the news hit about this, the AIDS virus, uh, all of us were panicking. Firstly, the gay community, because we initially thought, oh, it's just us, it's nobody else, because the press had a field day accusing the gays, it's your fault. And of course it wasn't, but we took the brunt of it because we were accused of, you know, leading this, you know, abnormal, the vicious, lascivious rather lifestyle and you get what you deserve. No empathy at all. I remember being on tour in America and watching news reports and, you know, protests and so on and all the wild and horrible accusations against gay people. Uh, you bought this on yourself and, and all of that was terrible. No empathy whatsoever, you know. Rob had a partner in Phoenix, but they were hardly monogamous. And while Rob wasn't nearly as promiscuous as many gay men in the 80s, he sometimes cruised in major cities 
and had unprotected sex with strangers. As the AIDS crisis grew, he became increasingly concerned. I was greatly worried. And as soon as I could, I got a test, you know. And um, I did watch my step to a certain extent, although I, I admit in the book that there were a couple of incidents, you know, related to that sexual cruising moments when you lose sight of common sense because you have such this, such a strong urge to have some intimate experience that you just um, you, you forget about the consequences. Fortunately, Rob tested negative. The band traveled to Ibiza and recorded Point of Entry, a disappointing album that featured a few good songs but lacked real punch. Judas Priest returned to the vacation hotspot in Valeric, Spain, and resettled into Ibiza Sound Studios. This time, they were determined to create a proper follow-up to British Steel. They succeeded, and then some, with Screaming for Vengeance, which many fans considered the band's best album. The release featured songs like the title track, Electric Eye, The Metal Behemoth You've Got Another Thing Coming, and Jawbreaker, a cryptic song Halford later admitted was about gay oral sex. The band started their tour for the album in the U.S., where You've Got Another Thing Coming rocketed to number four on the singles chart. Being in the U.S. gave Halford more opportunities to visit his boyfriend, David. But while the two men enjoyed spending time together, their sex life was tepid, and Rob was told by friends that David had been dating women. Every time Halford headed out to play a new city with Priest, his relationship with David was becoming more and more platonic. Back on tour, Halford was drinking and getting more reckless. Unbeknownst to his bandmates, Rob started wearing bandanas on his leather-studded leg guards to let gay fans know he was looking for companionship. But the move would have played far better to an Elton John crowd. Priest fans didn't even react to Rob's gesture. Aside from his failed pickup attempts, the Screaming for Vengeance tour was a great success cementing priests following in the States, and the tour ended with the aforementioned Us Festival. Thrilled by the band's success, but dejected by his failing love life, Halford sunk deeper into the bottle. At the end of another brief break, Judas Priest flew back to Ibiza to work on the album that became a fan favorite, Defenders of the Faith. The band loosely based the structure of the album on the successful Screaming for Vengeance and created 10 songs that varied from upbeat rockers, mid-paced sing-alongs, and anthemic tried-and-true calls for metal fans to unite. Judas Priest weren't complacent with the songwriting, nor were they off their game with the performances. They had just learned what worked, and worked well. And they kept themselves motivated by balancing work and fun. One night at a bar, Rob wanted to prove to his team that he could still write a song on the spot, With plenty of wine and beer flowing through his system, he penned Eat Me Alive, a none-too-subtle song about fellatio at gunpoint. Though it was meant to be an absurd joke, two years later the song landed in the crosshairs of the PMRC, a group of politicians' wives who were the source of the parental advisory stickers that were affixed to explicit albums for the next decade. In addition to being a great location for clubbing, Ibiza was the ideal scene for countless other ridiculous rock star antics. As Rob told me for Louder Than Hell, Well, we were making uh, 
all of those wonderful records over there. My God, that's when you hear the stories of, you know, Ian going through 20 rental cars and motorcycles in ponds and, you know, death-defying feats where KK gets run over by a taxi and Glenn, Glenn trying to, you know, wipe his wounds after plunging his hands into some boiling water while he was still on, on an acid trip. <laughs> <laughs> and then KK being bound up so much, he looked like, a, like an Egyptian mummy. <laughs> Couldn't walk for a week. Defenders of the Faith continued the band's worldwide metal domination. But with his love life falling apart, Halford gave up any effort to remain sober, even on stage. In 1984, before shows, he downed plastic mugs of vodka and tonic. Smirnoff replaced water as his between-song beverage of choice. And the after-concert routine consisted of two large cans of Budweiser and a full bottle of Dom Perignon. When Halford stumbled off the bus and into his hotel, he usually hit the bar, or at least the mini bar in his room. I knew it was bad for myself. I knew I was damaging myself, but I kept doing it, you know. Very strange human foible. While Judas Priest were on the road supporting defenders, Halford felt so stifled and confined that he started taking even more chances. His habit for cocaine became almost insatiable. When the band stopped at rest areas to eat, Rob snuck off to the bathroom to look for other lonely guys. After shows, he sometimes went to gay bars and bathhouses. Following the 1984 tour, Halford began a rapid downhill slide that turned into a near-death tumble. During a friend's wedding in Newcastle, England, Rob picked up a good-looking guy, and the two scurried to a gay bar and quickly headed to the bathroom. Afterwards, Rob flew to Marbella, where the band had rented a house in southern Spain, to start writing their next album. A few days later, Glenn pointed out that Rob's skin and eyes were yellow. They called the doctor, who easily diagnosed Halford's jaundiced skin tone. When I got hepatitis, and it was, you know, it was a life-threatening moment from that one little Trieste in the bathroom in Newcastle at some friend's wedding do, you know. It's just, it's remarkable the extremes that that some of us will take just to get that um, human contact. The doctor told Halford he was in the advanced stages of the disease, which spread through his whole body and damaged his liver. He gave Rob a vaccine injection and medication for chronic hepatitis. Then he ordered Halford to stay away from two things for six months, red meat and alcohol. With a diet of boiled chicken and steamed vegetables, and a cold turkey end to drinking, Rob was able to improve his diet and health without suffering DTs. However, staying sober was as agonizing as being celibate, and even with his drinking ban in place, he still needed a taste of alcohol before he felt comfortable enough to sing. The band had worked on the album Turbo in Spain for more than six months by the time they flew to the Caribbean to record. Having passed the doctor-mandated deadline, Halford started drinking again. In July 1985, Judas Priest played Live Aid. After a short but head-turning set, Halford chatted with Joan Baez and met Jack Nicholson before returning to the Four Seasons Hotel and hitting the bar. That's where he met a military vet named Brad, who enjoyed drinking as much as Rob and who really liked Rob. The feeling was mutual, 
and the two entered into a hot and heated relationship full of passion and fury. Brad could be fun-loving and charming. He could just as easily be argumentative and vicious. And when the couple was boozing and coked up, that's when the screaming started. One frantic evening at a record plant in Los Angeles resulted in a visit by police, telling them to stop screaming at one another and keep it down. Rob and Brad kept bickering. Then punches started flying. Rob kneeled on Brad's chest and swung with the vengeance of a gang member. Brad pulled Rob's hair and fought back. Both of their fists were slick with blood. Suddenly, Brad fled the room and disappeared for the night. The next day, Rob flew back home to Phoenix. Dejected and miserable, Halford invited his ex-boyfriend David to a bar, and Halford got absolutely shit-faced. Too drunk to drive, David stayed in Rob's house and crashed in the spare room, while Halford carried a bottle of Jack Daniels into his bedroom. That's when Halford reached for a large bottle of sleeping pills he had been prescribed. He took a pill and washed it down with the whiskey. Then he took another pill, had a drink. Then he took another pill and another. In his book, Confessed, Halford wrote that he had swallowed 20 to 25 pills when he groggily staggered to the spare room and woke up David. Realizing Halford had overdosed, David drove Halford to the hospital. To this day, Rob isn't quite sure what drove him over the edge. But he insists that if people like Robin Williams, Chester Bennington, and Chris Cornell can take their lives, anyone can. Look at all these beautiful people we've lost in rock and roll, John, in recent years. He looked great, she looked great, we were in a great time, you know. Next day, they're gone. This whole business of suicide in, in, our, in our industry, it's just very, very difficult to pin it down as to how and why it happens, you know. In my case, of course, it was, it was a lot of stuff that, that was... Uh, in the physical sense, it was there, the booze and the drugs and everything else, and you know, the sexual chaos was there. And uh, I, I don't know about some of these dear friends that we've lost where their state of mind was at. From all accounts, it seems that for the most part that we lost them and they went from a very coherent place to they're gone. So in my case, this, this kind of self-indulgent, self-pity of nobody loves me, take a pill and a swig of JD. Nobody loves me, take a pill and a swig of JD. That was, that was based on a sense of, of, of reality, confusion of, of reality. The fact is I, I had to go to hospital, you know, and they gave me stuff and made me throw up because I'd taken so, so many of these uh, really powerful sleeping sedatives that if I hadn't if they hadn't administered that then who knows what would have been the final outcome following a final outburst that left Halford punching walls his fingers raw and bleeding David convinced Judas Priest's vocalist to enter rehab in addition to cutting himself off from booze and drugs Halford underwent trauma therapy 30 days after entering the treatment center he was clean and sober and he committed himself to never getting drunk or high again a promise he managed to keep by turning to spirituality. I have a really strong foundation that's important to me, and I think I find that happens 
more to people the longer that they live. And I didn't expect to feel this way, but I am now, and it's very important to me. And it gives me a lot of peace and comfort and strength. When did that uh, that hit you? Probably in my sobriety, <laughs> <laughs> like it does to a lot of people. Uh -huh. You know, because something's keeping me sober. Mm -hmm. Why did you suddenly decide to? Because I knew that if, well, first of all, you have to admit that you're completely powerless mm -hmm. over life and controlling everything around you. Uh, and that there's something more important or something greater than your own being. And uh, when you admit that, then that's your first step to, you know, becoming sane again and, and uh, seeing and thinking and, and experiencing life on a different level. And it's not perfection because you never stop from one 24-hour experience to the next. Mm -hmm. Still a lot of temptation out there. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to slip, as we call it. I mean, I don't belong to any pro program. Mm -hmm. I've been given all the tools that I need to get me through each day. And I, and it's working, you know. But mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm not doing this by myself. I just know I'm not doing this by myself. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's coming from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I, I, I know what my weaknesses are and my foibles are. And, and so something's going on here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what you experience the longer, the, the longer you live and you sit there and think about these things. Feeling happier and more centered than he had in a long time, Rob visited Brad at his home in Philadelphia. Halford hoped they could salvage their relationship and Brad promised to enter rehab, which Rob took as a good sign. But Brad refused and didn't stop partying. The two stayed in contact as Priest hit the road to tour for Turbo, a keyboard-enhanced album that featured the love-it-or-hate-it single Turbo Lover. Then Rob invited Brad on the road to Europe. But Halford's 24-7 clean-and-sober lifestyle didn't suit Brad, who was bored and antsy without his drinking buddy. At night, Halford often stayed home while Brad went out partying, and the two began to drift apart. Their sex life suffered, and Brad's sister told Rob that Brad was spending a lot of time with a female friend, which triggered memories of David and his girlfriends. In December 1986, Brad visited Halford's home in Walsall, England, and spent Christmas Day with the singer's parents and sister. Lively and witty, Brad instantly won over Halford's family. Figuring they might have a future after all, Halford arranged to visit Brad in Philadelphia again. It was one of the worst decisions of his life. Rob arrived at Brad's townhouse on January 19th with their mutual friend Gigi. Minutes later, the two men were arguing, and Brad started trashing the place. So Rob and Gigi called a cab to take them to a hotel, where they planned to spend the night. As the cab arrived, Brad ran out of the house, hugged Halford, and told him he loved him. Then Brad turned around, and Rob noticed a handgun sticking out of Brad's waistband. Startled but unsure what to do, Rob got into the cab, and he and Gigi went to the Embassy Suites Airport Hotel. Feeling unsettled by Brad's volatile behavior, Halford called Brad's home phone. There was no answer, which was unusual since Brad always accepted Rob's calls, no matter how angry he was. Rob tried again. No luck. So he phoned Brad's uncle, who lived nearby, 
and had a key to the residence. The man said he'd rush right over. Two hours later, Rob heard back from Brad's uncle that Brad had walked into his bedroom, held the gun to his head, and pulled the trigger. Halford still gets chills when he thinks about that day. He never thought Brad took his life to get back at him and has developed great empathy for the families of suicide victims. How do you dissect that? It's, it's just, it seems impossible, especially for the, for the other half of a couple, as I was with Brad. The trauma that you leave afterwards is, uh, is, just, is just terrible. Of course, God forbid that's never the intent when, when, you, when you do take your own life. You're unable to comprehend what the, the after effect of that is going to be. But, but it's real because I, I went through it with Brad and that's still part of my, um, you know, my mental state even now. You never forget it, it's always there. Lately, having done many interviews for Confess, Halford sometimes wonders why he didn't confront Brad as soon as he saw the gun. And he still doesn't know if Brad had a clear plan when he said goodbye to Rob that day. My gut instinct told me something was looming. I don't know whether he was even aware of what he was doing at that point. I don't recall him doing anything like that for dramatic effect. But in this instance, I think he'd, he'd, he'd done what he did. He placed the gun in that, in that part of his body. And um, he just ran down to say goodbye. And that was it. But I knew, I knew something was going to happen. I was worried, as you would be. That's why I called his uncle, I think it was. Again, you know, guilt. If I'd have been there 30 seconds earlier just to yell at him, uh, maybe, you know, this would never have happened. That's the other thing about suicides and what it leaves behind. The, uh, again, the trauma of loved ones that... If I, why didn't I do this? How could I have missed that? If I'd have made a phone call, if I'd have texted, if I'd have banged on the door, you know, it's all, it's all this terrible tangled web of, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. We never, uh, you know, I, I, I never had any contact with the family after Brad left. And, I, I, you know, that's some finished business for me. It's got to be taken care of, I think, at some point, probably for both of us. Perhaps Judas Priest should have taken an extended hiatus while Halford grieved, but as it turned out, the band had already planned to take off most of 1987. Towards the end of the year, the band got together at a house Glenn bought in southern Spain to work on the follow-up to Turbo. That album, Ram It Down, was a more straightforward metal showcase and greased the chains for the band's most unrelenting release to date, Painkiller. Then, almost in an act of foreshadowing, Halford tumbled off a bicycle during a trip to Amsterdam and dislocated his elbow. Doctors put him in a full arm cast. But that's not why CBS indefinitely postponed Painkiller and the accompanying tour right before the album's release date. That misfortune stemmed from a tragic 1985 incident that was only tangentially related to Judas Priest. In Sparks, Nevada, two troubled youths from dysfunctional families were drinking, smoking weed, and listening to Judas Priest's stained class when they decided that life was too painful and jointly decided to kill themselves with the sawed-off shotgun. 
One of the young men died instantly. The other was irreparably maimed. Since the boys were listening to Priest, the kid's parents decided the band must be responsible and filed a $5 million lawsuit against the band and CBS Records. Since the First Amendment protects free expression, the parents couldn't claim that the band's lyrics inspired their kids to kill themselves. So they somehow determined that Judas Priest had inserted backwards messages in the album that caused the youths to take their lives. In a court case that was widely covered by the press, the prosecution argued that Judas Priest inserted the backmasked words, Do it, into their cover of Spooky Tooth's Better By You, Better Than Me, and that the move triggered the kids to make their death pact. In court, the prosecution played part of the song, and it did kind of sound like Do It. How those two words could incite suicide is another question. As Glenn Tipton told me, It was a massive learning process for us to go through that court case. It, you know, it wasn't a nice experience and, uh, to try and to sit there in court and listen to people say barefaced lies about the band and say that we've got subliminal messages on our album, you know, uh, encouraging people to kill us off was, uh, uh, wasn't a, a nice experience. And uh, I wanted to, to prove to the court, really, that... Um, you know, if you reverse anything, you get phonetic flukes. And so we took the album into a local studio and um, we recorded the album in question, which was soon after soon, I believe, and, uh, and reversed it and then played it backwards. And within 30 seconds, we found things like, hey, Ma, my chair's broken. Give me a peppermint. Give me two peppermints. They were phonetic flukes that really uh, had got nothing to do with, you know, causing bad things. So it, uh, and it, it was a great, um, it was a great demonstration that we did in court. And, and of course, the prosecution jumped up and she said, "Oh, you know, this, this, these have all been edited. Well, ours weren't edited. They're all at true speed. And if you plant something in something, one said, you know, it might go like, hey, my, my chair's broken. But as soon as you tell them what they're going to hear, it's as clear as a bell. Hey, my, my chair's broken. You know. And um, it was a fantastic demonstration." Painkiller finally came out in September 1990, and in an era of grunge bands and alternative rock, the album kept the metal torch aloft, and along with the records like Pantera's Cowboys from Hell, gave metal fans an alternative to what was then being considered hard rock. I'm John Wiederhorn host of Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Backstaged Podcast to discuss the show and all things metal. You can also email your thoughts, comments, and questions to backstaged at diversionpodcasts.com. That's podcasts, plural. Backstaged at diversionpodcasts.com. The Painkiller Tour was Judas Priest at its heaviest and most resilient, and it ended in an equally climactic manner. When we split up, um, we'd been on tour for a long time. We'd been working out on the road, and tensions get high. Rob did want to explore music, different musical direction, 
and that was the original reason you left the band. <clears throat> but mm -hmm. as always, you know, things can go sour, and they did for a while. Mm -hmm. And there was a few faxes sent around, you know, and, and one thing and another. Rob Halford never meant to quit Judas Priest. It was just one of those things, a perfect storm of circumstances, that resulted in his long-time departure. He had wanted to put together a side project while the band had some downtime, and then rejoin Priest when they were ready to record and tour again. But everyone got their wires crossed. Rob hastily faxed Priest's management, saying he needed to take a break from his bandmates and work on something on his own with a different manager. The way he worded the letter made it sound like he was quitting. Halford's new band, Fight, recorded the album War of Words, based on songs Halford had already written. Columbia Records had the first rights of refusal to release the album. For some reason, they didn't want it. In order to shop the album around to other labels, Halford was contractually obligated to write Columbia a letter saying he was resigning from Priest. It was meant as a legal loophole that allowed him to work with Fight. It's unclear who opened the can of worms, but somehow the letter got out to the press and suddenly headlines everywhere read, Rob Halford quits Judas Priest. Rob was humiliated and angry that what he was forced to do by Judas Priest's record label caused the opposite perception that he wanted, and he was too embarrassed to contact his bandmates or Priest's management to repair the damage. He feared they wouldn't want him back. The genie was out of the bottle. And for 14 years, Rob Halford was out of Judas Priest. I think it was the time scale, really, um, that, that where we had the argument. We had absolutely no argument whatsoever, him going to do, doing a solo album. But he, he, I don't know, I think it was before the time he said he wanted three years, which is a long time for a band like Judas Priest to stay dormant, if you know what I mean. And I think it all started from there. And it, you know, like I said, the insults started to fly, and uh, that was the end of that. Um, I mean, we, we were going to take a year off anyway. I mean, uh, we, we were at the end of our rope. We've been album two, album two of the previous 20 years, really. Um, and we, we, we said we'll have a year off before we start thinking about doing anything else. But uh, three years off, I think, and then starting again, which is another year in the writing and recording process. We, we thought we just a bit too long. Inevitably, it turned out that we, we were away for a lot longer than that, you know. Halford released two fight albums, the second being A Small Deadly Space in 1995. The next year, Priest decided to hire a diehard fan from Ohio, Tim Ripper Owens, to be their new vocalist. Owens had previously sung for a metal covers band and sounded a lot like Halford, and he was a powerful live performer. In 1998, the Owens-fronted Priest released the largely overlooked thrash album Jugulator, and the band started playing to half-empty theaters. Halford, too, dipped in popularity, partially because his other bands weren't Judas Priest, but also because of the late 90s so-called new metal bands like Deftones and Limp Bizkit, because the music of choice for young metal fans had changed. With no momentous metal fortress to worry about toppling, Halford felt less weight on his shoulders and didn't feel the need to be a spokesman for his trade. He was still clean and sober, had fumbled his way through several relationships since David's death, including a semi-regular threesome with a heterosexual couple, 
and finally discovered his life partner, Thomas, an ex-military man with whom he had exchanged letters on the painkiller tour. Comfortable in his skin and unafraid to venture beyond the boundaries of metal, Halford got together with guitar whiz John Five, who had been a member of Marilyn Manson and Rob Zombie, and was a friend of Trent Reznor. Rob and John Five worked together to write the industrial metal album Voyeurs by their band Two. After hearing the music, Reznor offered the two his sound designers to help with the samples, and offered to release the album on his Interscope subsidiary label, Nothing Records. The record combined samples, keyboards, and wild guitar parts with Halford's patented vocals. The album came out on March 1998, five months after Judas Priest's Jugulator, and there was a lukewarm response. Far more impacting was an interview he did with MTV on February 28, 1998. Rob entered the Viacom building at 1515 Broadway near Times Square, expecting to do a softball interview about voyeurs. That's how the exchange began, before the interviewer asked Rob a personal question he had answered ambiguously a hundred times before, about rumors that he was gay. For some reason, instead of saying that the question had nothing to do with music, or that he was just a rock and roll singer that makes music, he said the following, quote, I think that most people know that I've been a gay man all of my life. It's only been in recent times that it's been an issue I feel comfortable to address. Alfred spoke calmly and naturally, as if his revelation was no big deal, and added that there were as many gay fans of metal as there were gay fans of any other form of music. But it was a big deal. The secret that he had been trying to keep for 25 years was out, just like he was, and he no longer had to hide from the truth. Though Rob admits that before he left Judas Priest, he and his handlers were concerned that coming out would pose a danger to the band's career. If I'd have not left Priest, I probably wouldn't have come out because I love this band that much and I, I, I felt there would have been something that would have been difficult for the band to not necessarily cope with because it's been a known fact for mm-hmm. you know the, the guys forever. But we think beyond that and we think about the fans and, and, and everybody else that's involved in maintaining the life of, of what you're a part of. And then you become in a world where you go, well, you know, I I believe that you have to have your own house in order before you can face the rest of the world. And I I felt that that was a part of me that that, that needed to be just laid out in the open. So I did it when I was away with Priest, and I'm glad I did it because now it's full, you know, it's it's over and done with. But Mm -hmm. I still think that what I did essentially was for, for my own personal mental psychological peace of mind which is a great thing to do for myself and beyond that i think it was it had significant social importance in the music industry i know that now i didn't know that when i did it i never thought about it but in the in the you know through through time and through discussions and reading things and and so forth i, I appreciate now that it's had a lot of value halford received almost universal support from friends and fans when he came out of course, that didn't help the two record, which was largely ignored. Despite a push from Trent Reznor, the album sold poorly, and the few shows the band played were sparsely attended. One concert only drew 12 people. Realizing it too was not the right vehicle for him to take out live, 
Alfred canceled the band's European shows and dedicated himself to returning to four-on-the-floor metal. Over his career, he had achieved practically everything he set out to do. Now, he wanted to return to Judas Priest. Having recorded three albums that diverged from the sound of classic Priest and posed for two's voyeur press photos in a fur coat and eye makeup, Halford had no idea if Judas Priest would even consider working with him again. Yet, he had as much right as anyone to record songs like Hellbent for Leather and Screaming for Vengeance. So Halford stepped back into the leather pants and jacket that exemplified his metal persona and started his new band, Halford. Halford's main purpose was to recapture lost glory. After hooking up with a new batch of blatantly metal musicians, he started working on the group's first album, the appropriately titled Resurrection. Iron Maiden, which had recently reunited with their long-absent singer, Bruce Dickinson, invited Halford to open for them in Queensryche, and fans were stoked to see Halford approximating his former glory. Meanwhile, Judas Priest's second album with Ripper, Demolition, fared worse than Jugulator, leaving the band uncertain of its future. During the period of soul-searching, Rob released a second Halford album, Crucible. Then he wrote a letter to Judas Priest's management. He poured his heart out, stressing that he had never wanted to quit Priest, had gotten all of the other music he wanted to do out of his system, and his only desire was to come back home. It was a very good letter, actually. I just, it was just important to, to say some things that were best said from me, handwritten rather than a fucking typewriter, printed out on the computer. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, um, it kind of opened a little chink in the wall, in the door. The rest of the band were touched by Halford's honesty and agreed to give it a shot. In 2004, the band was booked to open for Black Sabbath on OzFest. Up to that point, Halford was playing to open-minded audiences. OzFest was a tougher crowd. The bill included Slayer, Slipknot, Demu Borgir, Lamb of God, and Superjoint Ritual. That was a litmus test for me, the OzFest. I didn't know what to expect. Didn't even think about it, quite frankly. But at the end of the Ausfest, I thought, God, I went out on stage in front of those people, and they weren't all Priest fans, mm-hmm. you know, and I did not experience one moment of rejection. Says Philip Anselmo, whose band Superjoint Ritual was on the bill and who watched Priest every night. We had a short conversation, man, and it was very, I guess, eye-opening because it was such a relief for him. Such a relief. Like, such a, a liberating thing to say, hey, look, this is who I am. You love me for who I am already, but this is the truth about who I am. Do you still love me? It's like, of course we do, Rob, you know? And I think that it felt good for him. With Halford back in Judas Priest and the band enjoying a level of success they hadn't experienced in more than a decade, Priest quickly returned to the top of the heavy metal hierarchy and have recorded four straight albums since Halford's return. Sure, there have been potholes in the road, some big enough to flatten tires. The band released the extremely ambitious double CD metal opera Nostradamus in 2008, 
But after their 2005 comeback album, Angel of Retribution, the new songs weren't up to par. Moreover, the band's limited budget prevented them from working with the symphony, so all the orchestral parts were programmed on keyboards that lacked the lush grandiosity of an orchestra recording. That was just a hiccup compared to founding guitarist K.K. Downing's decision to leave the band after the completion of 2014's Redeemer of Souls. Then, after Priest replaced Downing with the young, talented guitarist Richie Faulkner for the Redeemer tour, they started working on their most recent album, Firepower. Shortly before its release, the band announced that Tipton, who played on the album, had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and would no longer tour with the band. I spoke with Tipton shortly after he announced his decision to stop touring. When we started the rehearsals, I decided that really it was going to be too much for me with the medication and the time changes and everything else. I just felt that it, it was it was time to you know retire from from touring at least. I haven't at, at the moment decided to leave the band, but I don't I shan't be touring you know 18 months tours with with the band anymore. I just. Um, I'm sure people can appreciate how difficult it must be. I don't want to compromise the band either. And, you know, I, I, I'd like people to remember me as a notable guitar player, not, not someone who is struggling to get through through the set, you know. I've had some pretty dark days, you know. You can do that too, Parkinson. Obviously, you're not on top of the world. <laughs> you know, I always make a joke of it, you know, when I'm talking about very difficult to eat, you know, when you're on the road to eat food, that like Chinese soup's not very good, and, and peas aren't very good, and things like that. But um, no, I, I've, I've got no regrets. So now is the time, for, was, was the right time for me to, to let go, you know. Judas Priest were in a strange position when they launched the tour for Firepower. It was almost the inverse of the situation that they were in when they hired Tim Ripper Owens. Alfred was there, but neither of the band's founding guitarists were on stage. Tipton flew out for a few dates and joined the band for some of the simpler songs. But it was Faulkner that captured the fire, along with Andy Sneap, an established producer and the guitarist for the new wave of British heavy metal band Sabat. Some fans wondered if the band could convincingly pull it off. Tipton was never concerned. Richie is a phenomenal guitar player. And he's brought so much strength to the band, and he's helped me so much. He's just a fantastic guitar player, great songwriter, and if anybody can carry the torch on, it would be Richie. To celebrate their longevity as a band, Judas Priest planned to launch the 50 Heavy Metal Years Tour in 2020. But they were forced to postpone due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The European leg of the tour has been bumped to 2022, at which time Halford will be almost 72 years old and bassist Ian Hill will be 70. At this point, Judas Priest plans to release at least one more studio album. In early 2020, Faulkner, Tipton, and Halford spent a month working on new material, but the coronavirus halted their progress. Since none of the members want to work remotely, it's unclear at this point when they will return to the studio, especially with the 50th anniversary tour looming. These days, 
Halford is living a comfortable life with his partner Thomas and looks forward to returning to the road with Judas Priest. To keep himself sane, he takes one step at a time and avoids long-term planning. Regardless of what the future holds, he knows he has left an indelible stamp and a leather-booted stomp in the world of metal and the lives of millions of fans. When you're in this time of your life, you obviously are um, touched by your mortality. You know, you, you, you are dealing with things in a different way, physically and I dare say a little bit more mentally at this time of your career than you were when you started 40 years ago. Mm. But it does, again, make you reflect and, and bring in the, the, two, the two aspects, which is that we don't live forever, but the metal lives forever. Mm. And I think that's the greatest thing that we leave when we go off to the next place. The fact that the music is still generating all the wonderful things that metal does, even though we're not here in the physical pr physical presence, that's that's just fantastic. When you're in a band that comes from the roots of an invention of a style of music, it's just sensational to feel that you're still able to go out there and and let people witness the originators, one of the originators of the genre of music. Staged, The Devil in Metal is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn, produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. Production assistance from Anita Okoye and our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Clem Fandango is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein, executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends on Diversion Books. To purchase John's book, please go to Amazon.com or bookshop.org. Diversion Podcasts.